G'day listeners, you're listening to the Business of Biodiversity, brought to you by the New South Wales Government Saving Our Species program. I'm your host, Edgar Greste. Nature is fundamental to our survival. From food and clothing, to shelter and even technology, we rely on nature's resources for all these things. Whole industries have been created to extract resources from nature for a dollar value, often at a great cost to ecosystems and biodiversity. In fact, the United Nations 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development states an immediate need for ambitious action to conserve biodiversity. And just like those extractive industries, what if we could put a dollar value on conserving nature? But how do we do that? Well, in this episode, we'll hear from three individuals involved in valuing biodiversity through methods as diverse as offset agreements, environmental accounting, carbon farming and cultural fire credits. Long before nature's assets were viewed as a commodity, Indigenous Australians were part of the country and lived off the land sustainably. Today, an organisation called the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation, or ACF, has found a way to be paid for this knowledge of caring for country and the great work they're doing to regenerate landscapes. Hi, I'm Sean Appo. I'm a Berrigubba and Cubby Cubby man from Queensland. I live and work on Gadigal land. Actually, where I work is kind of on the border between Gadigal and Darrawal and Wongal lands here in Sydney, over in Marrickville. So yeah, I'd like to acknowledge my ancestors and the ancestors of the people in these lands and pay my respects to the elders past and present. In 2020, bushfires burnt over 14 million hectares of Australia's landscape and released approximately 830 million tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. In the wake of the devastation, the Indigenous practice of managing fire through cultural burning gained attention. It's a low, cool fire that removes fuel from the bush, preventing larger wildfires, and it can also help restore biodiversity. Sean, as the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation's New South Wales project manager, can you give us some examples of the work you're doing around cultural burning? So there are a couple of projects down the south coast that are doing some koala surveys and they want to be able to use cultural fire practice as a way of reinvigorating that ecosystem that supports a lot of koalas as well. So what that work would look like is they would perform cool burns or cultural burns during the colder months and those fires are a lot smaller. You've probably seen them like they just sort of crawl across the ground release very little smoke. There's no actual flames that are getting up into the canopy where a lot of the koalas would be probably sleeping during the daytime anyway. So that sort of cleans up the amount of fuel that is available for bushfires during the hotter months. It also brings back the kind of plant biodiversity that should be in those areas. So different soil types should support different plant life as well. Like some of the work that they would do would probably be to put back that sort of mosaic of ecosystems that should be more reliant on soil type, not just the amount of fires or hot fires that come through. And then the other thing that I've seen that does is like the other uh, animals that are in that ecosystem with koalas also come back because of the plant life that has sort of changed through cultural fire practice over a period of time. So there's a lot of different biodiversity outcomes that just come through one activity almost. So, you know, just that cultural fire gives a whole range of different benefits. Another one is the sort of yellow-footed rock wallaby in far western, northwestern New South Wales. 
you know, the local custodians, the traditional owners out there want to be able to re-vegetate this old pastoral lease that they've got access to uh, so that they can put their ecosystem together that would support that particular species to start flourishing again. Now, as well as projects that use cultural fire practices for land restoration, the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation is also looking into initiatives that restore ocean ecosystems too. We're also looking at blue carbon activities that puts seagrasses and seaweed back in place. So next week I'm going up to my father's traditional country up around the Whitsunday Islands um, and some elders are going to take me around some different places and look at what the seagrass population has been like because they're concerned that you know, some of their traditional foods and um, traditional totems like dugong and turtle, like those species are starting to move elsewhere because the sort of seagrass meadows aren't around anymore. So there's a range of different ecosystems that um, Aboriginal people want to be able to work in that uh, reinvigorates the biodiversity that, you know, again, they have arguably 65,000 years of data of what those ecosystems should look like. So there's a lot of information and Indigenous knowledges and Indigenous sciences that could be put back into practice in managing these places. Indigenous knowledge has an important role to play in restoring these ecosystems, which are also key to drawing down carbon from the atmosphere. And these kinds of restorative projects are all part of the growing carbon trading industry, where individuals and communities can earn carbon credits for their activities and trade them for income. And Sean sees the inclusion of Indigenous knowledge and cultural practices as a really good fit. I've kind of been thinking about this space and carbon farming for a long period of time because it really sits well with Aboriginal people and some of our sort of needs and, and wants almost of to get back onto our countries and to be able to look after the environment. I mean, that's, that's what we did for, you know, thousands and thousands of years, like tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, we've been doing that on this country. And it's only been the last sort of 250 where we've really seen like Aboriginal people being taken off the land. So that connection sort of being taken away and then a different management practice has has sort of dominated and we've seen the country go downhill ever since, I would argue. Sean says that to turn this around, Indigenous communities need resourcing and support to empower them. And income from carbon farming projects is a vehicle for that. I think a lot of communities have really good ideas for how to solve their own problems. They just don't have the resources to do that. And I see carbon farming and sort of environmental land management as a way to help um, Indigenous people, not just here, but globally, to reinvigorate their own cultural protocols and practices and uh, augment that with technology to take them wherever they want to go. What this system is really all about is helping the community to understand and write down what their own priorities are in line with their social core benefits, their cultural core benefits and their environmental core benefits. So it's essentially helping them to set up their own KPIs that they're going to monitor um, progress towards. So I can sort of see how that's a very enriching and sort of nourishing thing to be able to go through because it gives the people who have worked in those projects, it lets them sit back and sort of take that holistic view of their projects and see how far they've actually come and what kind of benefits and impacts that work has given back to their communities. The Aboriginal Carbon Foundation, or ACF, 
supports carbon farming projects to measure and verify the amount of carbon reduced in the atmosphere. And that's how it generates carbon credits that can be sold to businesses looking to reduce their carbon footprint. On top of that carbon, there are also these other co-benefits like environmental, social and cultural values associated with these places and projects, which also attracts a premium in the marketplace. And part of what the ACF does is train Indigenous people to be the experts in outlining these other benefits through their own process called the Core Benefits Verification Framework. So I was one of the facilitators for the training that we did recently up in the Bunya Mountains. I think it was the end of June this year. So we had 26 different participants from ranger groups and cultural fire practitioners who participated in that training. And it was one of the first times where you could actually see people, like Aboriginal people, going through a training program and growing through it. So they were gaining confidence, they were gaining voice. They felt comfortable to be able to provide input because of the way and the sort of philosophy that underpins the core benefits verification framework is really about Aboriginal people working with Aboriginal people. <laughs> what this system is really all about is helping the community to understand and write down what their own priorities are in line with their social core benefits, their cultural core benefits and their environmental core benefits. So all of this training not only empowers Indigenous people in caring for country, but it's also something that individuals, businesses and governments can invest in. One example of how the ACF is doing this is by creating a cultural fire credit. This is going to be a way that people and everyday people can invest in cultural fire programs. So we're doing some modelling at the moment looking at places that do frequently suffer from bushfires and looking at, well, how can cultural fire programs be funded in a sustainable way in those areas to be used as a bushfire mitigation strategy? That's where we sort of came about and looked at, well, what could be a sort of appropriate investment mechanism or funding mechanism for that? And that's how the sort of cultural fire credit came about. So we have our own trading platform called Catalyst Markets, where we are selling that as one of our sort of environmental commodities. Um, we're also hoping to be selling selling carbon credits from there in the near future as well. So, you know, there's a number of different innovative things that we're doing and we're looking at, like, who are our critical partners to help us do that. And everywhere I've been going in New South Wales talking about carbon farming, cultural fire practice is definitely something that, those traditional owners and those custodians of those lands see as a really vital tool in land management practice. The Cultural Fire Credit has been developed by the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation in collaboration with the Fire Sticks Alliance Indigenous Corporation. And if you want to find out how to invest, we'll put links to this in the show notes. Managing landscapes for conservation and biodiversity takes time, effort and money. The Biodiversity Conservation Trust, or BCT, is a not-for-profit organisation 
set up by the New South Wales Government, and its aim is to partner with landholders to enhance and conserve biodiversity across New South Wales. Diwa Renders is the Regional Manager for the Murray Riverina region of the BCT. We work with landholders to set up what are essentially the equivalent of national parks on private land. So it's private land conservation managed by the landholders who own the land. They make the decisions about the land, but we support them to protect and manage their biodiversity. Um, and that's in a number of ways. And we have uh, staff with a lot of biodiversity knowledge. We've got ecologists and regional conservation officers. We're also an education organisation. So when we, being regionally based, we really feel strongly about being part of our community and, and promoting the, the values of biodiversity. The way the BCT operates is that it's funded by New South Wales government investment, private philanthropy, and companies wishing to offset biodiversity losses from development. The BCT is then able to reward landowners for their biodiversity conservation work, which include grants, funded agreements, generation of credits, and offset agreements. We have such a, a huge range of landholders uh, with different objectives for managing their land. You know, some are looking for that annual income to diversify their, their business opportunities. Others have been managing their land for biodiversity for many, many years and they really want to protect it in perpetuity and everything in between. You know, we have tree changers who've just bought their land and, and want to set up an agreement as well as fifth generation farmers. We offer a range of programs for a whole suite of reasons, as long as it's protecting sort of remnant vegetation and on private lands. Part of these programs involve measuring, monitoring and assessing the landscape to make sure biodiversity is being protected and kept in good condition. And in some cases, they're also looking for improvements to the landscape. The Biodiversity Conservation Trust does monitoring and that's just to see that over time the biodiversity is being protected and remains in good condition. Our offsets agreements, which are called Biodiversity Stewardship Agreements, a lot of those require there to be some biodiversity gain and improvement and so that does have stricter monitoring and you do get some baseline data at the beginning and then good management of weeds and pests and removal or limiting of grazing, uh, only doing targeted strategic grazing, will mean those biodiversity values will increase um, over time and that is that is well monitored. What are some of the financial benefits that landholders can gain from participating in any of your programs? For some agreements we provide annual payments for them to be able to manage that land, fencing, weeding, anything that enhances and manages the biodiversity, pest control and others might be an offset agreement so it provides them with uh, diversified income and, and a definite annual income stream that they know will protect that biodiversity and also assist with their business management. Most definitely some of our landholders would attest to that having a conservation area or a stewardship area, uh, the stewardship areas in our language is an, an offset area, um, has diversified their income so it means that they have a definite income on over a portion of their land which means they can be more flexible with other parts of their business uh, and then productive landscapes so I think it's a a fantastic opportunity for a lot of landholders. They have an area of their property that they manage for biodiversity and then that can help support other areas with the ever flow of markets, seasons, droughts, that they can then uh, respond more to the markets and, and seasons and manage more sustainably. There's a perception out there in the community that conservation means locking up land and not being able to farm it. Have you got any examples where conservation and production can coexist? I'll give you an example. We're just in the Biodiversity Conservation Trust, just 
signing up eight landholders in the Hay District to a Plains Wanderer Conservation Agreement uh, and they're committing to managing grasslands for this critically endangered little quail-like bird uh, that needs the, the grass managed to a very specific criteria and the best tool for that is grazing animals. So that's a project where you've got agricultural production goes hand in hand with biodiversity conservation objectives. Um, so that's kind of a sweet little story there. But I think it's not only the Biodiversity Conservation Trust, there's a lot of people working in this space and it's all sort of coming to a point where we're sort of valuing it more, providing funds for those things and I think that we're kind of riding the wave, if you like, of that happening in the community. Earlier in the show we mentioned other incentive programs like carbon farming and the trading of carbon credits. And there are a bunch of methods that landowners can use to achieve carbon sequestration in the environment. We talked about cultural fire as one, but there are other methods that involve things like planting trees and growing plants. And that's where there's a bit of a crossover with what the BCT is doing. Without necessarily double dipping, so to speak, is there a way that the conservation efforts around biodiversity that you're promoting can actually benefit under these schemes? At the moment, the Biodiversity Conservation Trust puts covenants over remnant vegetation, so really high quality conservation lands. But we're looking at options for maybe where carbon credits and particularly the environmental plantings method might be able to add value to those remnants, like it's particularly in highly modified landscapes. There's probably opportunities for environmental plantings to be able to, be able to provide linkages between remnant patches or to grow remnant patches and therefore make some really great additions to our biodiversity values in those highly modified landscapes. And so that's the sort of thing we're sort of investigating at the moment. Well, it's great to hear there's opportunity to be rewarded for this focus on biodiversity conservation. And it sounds like the space is constantly evolving. So what's your advice for landowners wanting to get involved? It's like with any business decision, ask lots of questions, get your head around it, think about what, your, what are your values, what are your objectives for your property. Every one of our conservation agreements is developed with the landholder, so we look at the management, we suggest things, they suggest things, and we work out a management plan specifically for that, that block, depending on the objectives of their business and of our sort of biodiversity management objectives. So it's sort of a collaborative, definitely a collaborative sort of bespoke process to develop a management plan for each conservation agreement that we set up. I suppose it's up to landholders to work out what their, their business needs are, what their vision is for their property um, and how protecting biodiversity might be part of that business plan or it might just be part of their vision for what they leave for the next generation. Each and every one of us has an environmental account. Think of it like a ledger of our impact on nature. Most of us don't know what it looks like, but it's probably in the red. And the recent 2022 United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP27, has brought environmental sustainability into the headlines. Many governments and companies have made pledges to reduce their environmental impact. And the first thing they do is to assess their environmental account and establish their credentials. But how to measure, monitor and substantiate these claims can be hard. In Australia, there's a not-for-profit organisation called Accounting for Nature that's helping businesses do just that. Chrissy Elmer is their Science and Technology Program Manager. So we implement a framework that is consistent with the UN system of environmental economic accounting. 
Um, and so that framework essentially provides guidance on how proponents can develop environmental accounts and then importantly have them certified and verified. And that is really important to ensure that they're credible and there's trust in them um, to really avoid greenwashing. Chrissy, can you tell me how this can be applied to specific threatened species and biodiversity? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I guess we provide a standardised and scientifically robust way for anyone to monitor threatened species or just monitor fauna in general. And so it's a way of providing environmental condition or condition of that species into decision making. And so a key feature of accounting for nature is that we actually summarise environmental condition with a single number. Um, So we summarise a lot of complex scientific information into what we call the ECOND or the Environmental Condition Index, um, where zero means that the asset is completely degraded. So if we're talking about a threatened species, it would be extinct. Um, Whereas 100 would mean that that species is in an undegraded state or pristine. And so it would be the expected abundance and distribution of a species, for example. And so by doing that, it really summarizes the condition in an easy to understand way that is able to, um, I guess, be incorporated into decision making. I'd imagine it'd be pretty challenging to put a single number on the condition of a species since nature is constantly changing and evolving. Can you give us an example and explain some of the methods you use to assist you in this process? At the moment, we have a number of methods that cover a lot of different asset classes. Um, So native vegetation, fauna, soil and water. And so the fauna methods at the moment can either be targeted species specific methods, such as a threatened species like the koala, for example. We have a method for the koala currently in development. But we also have methods that are more general, so like terrestrial mammal species richness, or aquatic vertebrate species richness. And so we can really, I guess, understand threatened species based on how a method is designed. So the koala method, for example, includes both a habitat condition component and a population component. So that's really important to be able to see, even if you are restoring habitat to a suitable condition, you then get to see if there are actually koalas returning to that habitat, for example. So to actually understand the on-ground outcomes for a particular threatened species. So by having um, approved scientific monitoring methods, you're actually using the exact same method year after year to monitor the condition of your environmental assets. And so you're able to yeah, really measure the condition in a consistent way and a comparable way. It sounds like robust monitoring and measurement is key to getting reliable results. I'm interested to know how granular the method can get. As you know, some threatened species and ecosystems are really localised. So does the framework cater for that? So we recently accredited a regional fauna method, um, and it's quite significant in that it relies on expert elicitation to provide a regionally relevant estimate of the conservation status for fauna species within the region. And so while we have state and EPBC listed species, they're often not like that locally relevant. And so by having this more locally refined conservation status, essentially, it can help communities feel a bit more connected to the threatened species and a bit more of an understanding of their local area, um, while also maybe providing a way to better inform conservation initiatives, for example. 
Um, so that that's quite an exciting one, really, um, because, yeah, we can see really locally which species are declining or which species are increasing. So apart from enabling individuals, organisations and governments to inform their management and policy decisions, I understand that the Accounting for Nature framework can also benefit those looking to earn income from things like environmental stewardship programs and carbon farming projects. What are the kind of organisations and individuals you're working with in that space? Uh, at the moment, we are working with a lot of landholders, farmers, also carbon aggregators. So one of the key purposes for developing an environmental account is actually to uh, verify co-benefits. Co-benefits are basically the additional benefits achieved from a carbon project. So for example, if you're uh, restoring an area of land for carbon, it will also have biodiversity benefits, which are what we call co-benefits. So if you're doing what we call a nature-based solution, so rather than just planting a monoculture of pine for carbon, if you're restoring it back to a native forest, then that will also bring back native species and native biodiversity. And so that's, that's definitely a growing market. And we're seeing, yeah, a lot of co-benefits for native vegetation. And then also they're moving into the fauna space. So verifying koalas as co-benefits as well. There's one property, it's a grazing company. They've managed to improve condition while also improving production at the same time. So they've actually got a really big population of betongs which is quite rare for the area. And yeah, we set up a number of wildlife cameras and we were really surprised with the species that we saw. That's sort of proof that you can have a productive system while also maintaining the biodiversity and the, the natural ecosystem because their property was cleared maybe 70 years ago and they've let it just go back to what it was with some management actions. But yeah, it's really exciting to see actual proof around those concepts. What a great story about those mutual benefits of conservation and production. And I was curious to know, do you see this framework as changing the way we value nature and our actions towards conserving it? I think a lot of work in the past has really focused on that innate value of nature, but we've really seen that that just, it hasn't really worked. We're still seeing species declining, species going extinct. We're still seeing land clearing. And so by actually putting a value on it and incorporating it into economics, that's sort of a new way to get people who don't think about the innate quality of nature to really value it in, I guess, monetary terms. And we're actually also seeing quite an increase in interest in environmental accounting off the back of the task force for nature-related financial disclosures. So that's a voluntary framework that's being set up to encourage corporates and organisations to really consider and disclose on their environmental impacts and the risks associated with their entire value chain. Um, and so we're really hoping that environmental accounting can be a way to underpin those disclosures and provide, I guess, credible metrics underlying them. All our guests have different approaches towards the conservation of biodiversity in our environment. But one thing that all these groups have in common is the goal to reframe how we value nature's biodiversity so we can collectively move towards a more sustainable future. We're all going to meet increasing targets to minimise the amount of carbon that gets into the atmosphere. We need to be you know, investing in a, in a whole range of works that will help us meet that target really, really quickly because it's not going to be long until 
we have to be net zero. And then after that, I think there's still a large role in continuing to draw carbon out of the atmosphere so that we can stabilise the environment. I guess our focus is really from the ground up. Um, so whoever wants to develop an environmental account can develop an environmental account. And so that is something that we're working towards now, partnering with a lot of different NRM or natural resource management groups. And then if enough of them do it, we should hopefully be able to aggregate up to a national account. And then also we're looking to expand internationally as well within the next year or so. We talk to landholders every single day and I think they're who inspire us. That's what the joy of our work because there is so much knowledge out there. Um, they're willing to share. We're all on a journey together to sort of see how we can improve our biodiversity values of lands across the state. Um, and it's the diversity of landholders, the diversity of their approaches, the willingness and, and the, you know, the vision out there that we're following uh, and working with that really gets us all out of bed every day. This podcast has been produced by Grow Love Project with support from the New South Wales Government's Saving Our Species program. To hear more episodes, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and for more info about the Saving Our Species program, visit savingourspecies.online slash podcast. Thanks for listening.